0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's 11 o'clock here in London, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's FS Club webinar. Today, we're gonna be talking about what do SHREMS2, Brexit, and data localization rules mean for cross-border data compliance in and your global digital strategy. Uh, And with a snappy title like that, uh, we have to have at least two presenters. So we have uh, today, Samita Patel and Gordon Ardell. We're gonna be talking us through it. Now you'll know me, I'm Michael Minelli, I'm one of the directors of Xi'an, and it really is my delight to be able to introduce so many of these webinars uh, along with my other hosts uh, on these. And the reason is, uh, frankly, uh, we've got such a great group of sponsors, uh, a whole variety of sponsors here who are very kind and allow us to range widely across technology, economics and finance. And of course, today's session is a very, very important one in that regard. Uh, Schrems one, uh, uh came out, uh, and it was a very, you know, interesting thing then. It's named after Maximilian Schrems, an Austrian privacy advocate. Uh, and Schrems two, which was somewhat unexpected, uh, popped out this past July. But it's not for me to explain. It's, it's for our guests. Uh, just to walk you through as ever the agenda today, um, I'm going to get out of your way as quickly as possible so you can hear from Samita and Gordon. Uh, Please do remember that we have a question and answer session uh, after their presentation of approximately 25 minutes. And to uh, get comments, questions or observations into that, please use the GoToWebinar question facility on your screen. Um, A lot of people like to email me or text me. That's very kind, but I'm here with you right now, so I'll only get those afterwards. Uh, And so please do uh, send them through to me and I will be feeding them into the conversation. And it should be a particularly rich conversation because I think that uh, we've all been to some degree uh, overwhelmed uh, to the lack of progress on Brexit. We tend to forget that there's some real changes ahead. And this is potentially one of the most important ones for anybody working in technology and finance. Well, enough of me, if I may, um, and our two presenters are going to get cracking. And I was just wondering uh, if I could hand the floor over to you, Samita.
1: Of course, thank you very much. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining today. Um, my name is Samita Patel, um, and it's a it's a pleasure to be speaking with you all today. Um, I suppose a little bit of background for me. Um, I've spent uh, the best part of about ten years specialising in privacy and data protection, um, really helping organizations um, design and deliver global privacy programs and As you can probably um, imagine more recently due to uh, recent developments in this space. Um, This support has has had a particular focus on the data transfer workstreams of those global privacy programs, which you may have guessed um, is the focus of the session today. Um, I will hand over to Gordon, who will quickly introduce himself before we move on to uh, discussing what we're going to cover today. Gordon.
2: Many thanks, uh, Samita and, uh, uh, and Michael, and many thanks, Zien, for, for the invitation. Uh, I am a barrister, I practice in London, and when such things are allowed despite quarantine restrictions in, in Brussels, barristers are probably best known for ripping everything to shreds when projects fall over. Uh, but just occasionally, we play a more positive role. and we advise our clients on uh, how best to avoid things falling over in the first place and I've acted for many years in the privacy space dealing sometimes with commercial claims for breach of confidence, sometimes with the regulatory end of things, uh, GDPR and other, privacy, other European uh, privacy issues and I have a broad practice acting for data control as but also sometimes for NGOs, individuals, data protection authorities, DPAs themselves and other people with an interest. So I hope to bring a broad perspective to today's discussion. So back to Samita.
1: Thanks so much. So um, I thought I might spend a couple of minutes just um, really talking about what we're going to cover in today's session. Um, Firstly, as you can see, the headline of Shrems 2 and what impact this has had on risk to organizations. Um, We also thought it might be useful to provide um, a bit of a practical overview um, which Gordon will walk you through of dealing with um, competing regulatory requirements as sometimes this might not be contemplated or could even be overlooked. Um, We'll then touch on Brexit and how the end of transition is shaping up Um, followed by uh, what we hope is um, a really practical discussion around managing and approaching cross-border data transfer projects within organizations. Um, We'll then recap the key takeaways from today's session and hand over to you all for Q&A. As you can all see, there's a a very good amount of content to cover. So on that note, uh, let's dive straight in. Um, So this, this slide, is a a very, very uh, sort of high level overview of where data localization or data requirements, data transfer requirements, um, plot across the globe. It's by no means um, intended to be a comprehensive overview of those data localization and data data transfer requirements. However, you can see that um, there are pockets of these requirements that pop up across the entire you know span the entire globe um, just to recap then um, some of those requirements are data specific so that's talking about particular kinds of data types that cannot be um, you know transferred cross-border from a particular jurisdiction and then some of them are also sector specific so we 're talking about public sector government organizations um, or healthcare uh, sectors um, so you know many of you will um, have various localization requirements or data transfer requirements uh, applicable to your organization so this is just a just an overview to set the scene. Um, I suppose some notable developments in this area have been you know we 've seen some um, newer sort of, uh, requirements being introduced in, in the likes of China, um, India, the EU have recently published, um, the Data Governance Acts, um, which is creating a framework really generate with generated uh, data with it with, from EU citizens um, to help businesses and public bodies to share data more freely, um, but really in keeping with the EU requirements. So that's the Data Governance Act. Um, and as the magnifying glass sort of indicates here, we'll be focusing on the EU and the UK for the rest of this um, session. I suppose it's really important to understand that um, there are some countries and some um, requirements that uh, restrict the transfer of data um, across border but there are some that just impose additional safeguards um, such as the EU um, that don't necessarily um, you know talk about localization of that particular data set but just impose Additional requirements for you to transfer that data so it's safeguarded in in light of um, the the local requirements. So, I suppose before we move on, we thought it might be interesting to run a quick poll um, on which regional requirements your organizations are are most concerned about. So, um, if you do, take a couple of minutes um, to answer the poll, and the results will be with us very shortly. Yeah,
0: so I don't think it'll take a couple of minutes, uh, Samita. We've got a, an audience that's pretty fast off the mark here. Excellent. <laughs> um Just bear with me a second. Over half the folks have voted. And just give it oh, another very four or five seconds. There we go. Uh That's it. I'll close the poll now. And that's just about everybody. Um It's so fantastic. And here are the results. Uh, an overwhelming uh percentage, 92% uh, believe it's the EEA and the EU, but they can vote on multiples. So uh, 55% for North America is next, Middle East and Africa, uh, sorry, Asia Pacific, and then Middle East and Africa, and then finally Latin America. So uh, any quick comment on that?
1: No, I think it's it's um, great to see um, that the the content of our session is focused on <laughs> the area that is most concerning to all. So, handing go over good. to Gordon now. My,
2: my thoughts precisely. We're clearly on the right track with this seminar. So, many thanks for that, everyone. Well, well, Shrem's. Uh, it, it's a headline issue. Here are some of the uh, here are some of the choice uh, headlines from the mainstream and uh, sectoral media. Um, And Schrems is a headline issue because it comes at a time when it creates a perfect storm, when cross-red to Brexit, because what the UK wants and what the UK needs from the Brexit process is an adequacy decision from the EU. It needs its equivalent of safe harbour, although it needs an equivalent of safe harbour that's going to fare a little better in the event of a challenge in the European Court of Justice. That's not up for negotiation, it's not part of the negotiations, it's a unilateral matter for the commission, but of course that process is freighted with all the ill-tempered politics that we've seen on display over the last few days in the Brexit negotiations themselves. So it's a, Shrems it's a, is a big deal partly for that reason, but actually, and if we could have the next slide please, for avid watchers of this space, it shouldn't really be such a big surprise after all, because Shrems I think is best seen as the latest in a long line of landmarks, pieces of legislation, but particularly cases decided by the European Court of Justice, which have gradually strengthened the standards of protection of individual rights in the data privacy space. So no surprises really, and you you can see on the screen some of the the landmark events and decisions, but the the real takeaway from this is that Schrems is the latest in a long line of cases which have gradually developed a set of principles but govern the way in which data controllers and public authorities have to respect people's data privacy, people's data autonomy. It's a very complex body of law, but let me try and reduce it to this. Basically, what the court has said over the years, and it said the same thing in trends, is that any rules that authorise an interference with personal privacy have to be clear, they have to be transparent, and they have to be proportionate. And that translates into three principles, three ideas. First of all, Courts don't like mass or blanket intrusion into personal data. They have, you have to have a good reason for interfering with someone's data rights. You have to target your data, your, your, your data intrusion measures. Secondly, this is probably the most important of the principles in terms of what we're going to be looking at today. The rules and policies that authorize uh, the processing or handling of people's private information have to be clear to the data subject. Some of the biggest headline fines from data protection authorities just recently. I don't know if anyone spotted this. The other week, there was something on the wires about a large French supermarket that received a fine uh, of three million euros. By far and away, the biggest element of the fine in the reasoning of the French data protection authority was for failing to provide transparent information on the website as to how data was going to be used and transferred. So policies have to be clear. That's what transparency is about. And then finally, safeguards have to be adequate and in particular what the courts insist on is effective redress for individuals who complain that their data has been mistreated and those three principles uh, are added together on what the european Court call, calls the high level of protection guaranteed under eu law for personal data and developments in the specific area of overseas transfer of data were catapulted into to judicial attention by the snowden revelations all those years ago where it was key that the us authorities we're, we're doing exactly what the European Court says you mustn't do. They were, uh, uh, they, they were accessing huge amounts of data without any individual justification for looking at particular people's data. They were doing it covertly, so there was no transparency, and there were no routes by which non-US citizens whose data was being swallowed up uh, by a uh, prison and so forth could obtain any redress. So, so that's the background to Schrems. So if we can look quickly at the next slide. In a sense, I, I've given you the content. What TREMS decided was precisely what I've just summarized about the inadequacy of the US system. And of course, it had already decided very much the same point in Shrems one, it invalidated the, the original safe harbor adequacy decision, and effectively it said that uh, the, the, the privacy shield, uh, the substitute uh, adequacy decision um, based on supposed patching up uh, of uh, the deficiencies in the US system um, uh, it said that 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 uh, that, um, that really didn't fit the bill. And the key principles uh, were, um, here we are on the slide, if you're going to transfer data out of the EU or EEA, you've got to rely on one of those three routes under Chapter 5 of the GDPR, an adequacy decision, or if you haven't got that, sta- standard contractual clauses, or similar, or derogations under Article 49. For each of those routes, the same high level of protection applies those principles that I, I quickly looked at earlier and uh, the the high standards that are required are the same for each of the routes, so whether you're relying on an adequacy decision or standard contractual clauses, those same principles for protection of people's data have to be observed. Now the uh, the real challenge in Schrems is actually not to privacy shield at all, it was to the standard contractual clauses that are authorized by another commission decision. It was a frontal attack on those, the frontal attack sort of failed. Why did it sort of fail? Well the court ruled that the standard contractual clauses were valid, but that came at a price. They are only valid because the data controller has an obligation to verify that they're actually working, has to verify that the data are in fact being processed in accordance with that essentially equivalent standard of protection in the recipient territory. The recipient of the data under those standard clauses is under, under an obligation to monitor that, and in turn, the data controller in the EU is under an obligation to monitor that things are actually working, that the, uh, that the recipient is doing what they should. And if not, says the Court of Justice, the data controller has to suspend or end the data flow. And if the data controller doesn't do it, then the National Data Protection Authority is under an obligation to step in. So the SSCs are valid, but that validity comes at a price. However, the Privacy Shield decision, which actually wasn't what fundamentally under attack in this case, was ruled invalid. So the same problems which the Court identified in FREMS 1 hadn't been rectified, so on to the next slide please. So what what's the fallout from TREMS to, well I think it can be summarized in one word and, and that is risk, possibly two words, outsourcing of risk. You can no longer rely on privacy shield, the, the vocabulary of shield was well chosen, it's the idea that a shield is created by the EU and US authorities, they've negotiated among themselves and you, the data controller can rely unquestionably on the adequacy decision for transferring your data. That ends here. The point about standard contractual clauses, certainly as interpreted by the courts, is that the data controller now bears the onus of ensuring that the system works. The data controller can't rely on the assumption that standard contractual clauses is doing their job, the data controller has to monitor that. So risk has been outsourced to data controllers and so has the risk of something going wrong, and the risk is twofold, the double whammy as I've called it, first of all at a regulatory level, following the GDPR, the national data protection authorities now have real teeth, they can impose fines of a very significant proportion of of turnover, and that's coupled with, uh, with new rights for data subjects in the courts, the scope for individual court claims against data controllers by individual data subjects has been increased, so there's also a risk that data controllers who get this wrong are going to be subject to rules, uh, subject to actions for damages and the prospect of that has gradually been creeping up, why? Because of the parallel growth of group and class actions in the consumer protection space in the EU and in the UK, that's important. Individual claims for misuse of data, claims by data subjects against data controllers can be costly if they're bought by individuals, and they don't tend to produce very large awards and damages. The point about group and class claims is that first of all, you aggregate the damages, but secondly and more importantly, you pool the costs and that makes these kind of claims very attractive to funders. Funders are getting interested precisely because the aggregate of a large number of modest claims can be a very large figure indeed. And so the funder steps in to, uh, to fund the pooled cost. So the risk is being transferred and the, the scope of the risk, the, the, the price that can be paid if something goes wrong, that's, that's risen as well. So, how do you manage the risk? Well, here comes a case study. Uh, as as, as Sabita mentioned earlier, we've chosen the case study this problem of competing regulatory requirements. Um, why? Because this is a very good example of the risk, the onus being on the data controller, but it's also an example of how a data controller. Can take practical steps to manage and mitigate that risk. Now, as I said, what the court said in in Schrems 2 was that whichever route you take, whether it's the derogations under Article 49 or an adequacy decision or static contractual clauses, is the same high level of protection applies. If you're transferring data to the law enforcement authorities of a third country, actually you've never been able to rely on SCCs. You've always had to rely on the derogations. And what the court has affirmed in Schrems is that even with those derogations, you've still got to apply safeguards that apply those. Principles of transparency and proportionality—essentially equivalent. Now, here's where you have a problem because if you're transferring data, for example, to the U.S. Treasury in relation to a tax or a sanctions investigation, the U.S. Treasury want it all. If you say, as a as a a, say a financial services operator, terribly sorry, you can't have it, um, you're not going to get a you're not going to get a very friendly response from OFAC or U.S. Treasury. They're going to say, well, terribly sorry, we want this, and as you know, we can make life difficult for you uh, if uh, in in dollar trading if we don't get it. At the same time, if you do hand over all the information about your customers uh, and their counterparties, which OFAC is asking for, you're going to be in deep water with your National Data Protection Authority. It's actually very difficult, if not impossible, to be entirely compliant with both the requirements that OFAC impose and the requirements that your National Data Controller is going to impose post-TREMS under the GDPR. So what you're aiming for in practical terms is a system for data exports which is, as I've called it, maximally compliant, no pun with maximally, trends intended. Okay, the pun was not technical, I know it's terrible, so brickbats rather than bouquets. So how do you deal with that? Well, my suggestion is this, that you focus on the second of those three principles, the one I said is possibly the most important, that is transparency, ensuring that you've told everyone, not just data subjects, but your National Data Protection Authority, how you're going to comply, how you're going to take rights into account. And what's important is audit trends. Um, not just in terms of how you have set up your, your your decision-making structure, explaining where the decision points are going to be, explaining how your staff are going to balance the demands uh, from the US Treasury against the, the requirements of data protection, but also when you're dealing with an individual request about individual data subjects, information, uh, uh, keeping an audit trail, showing how you struck the balance, showing how you've uh, decided whether it's whether the balance favours uh, passing on that information. So audit trails at the macro and micro level, uh, are the key to transparency, and that's how you're going to uh, uh, that's how you're going to mitigate those risks. So even if you can't eliminate the risk entirely, and you're caught out by the data protection authority or by an individual claim, you're going to have a good story to tell about mitigating fines and mitigating liability to damages. So it's about understanding and then taking practical steps to mitigate risk. So back to Sumita, I'm so sorry. Quick a quickie on Brexit on the next slide, if I may. I think I've said what I'm going to say about Brexit, so it's just the last point here, and it's this. The point about Brexit is that if we don't get an adequacy decision by the 31st of December, and I have to say it's looking iffy, then uh, you're going to have to fall back on standard contractual clauses if you're receiving data flows from a data controller in the EEA. Uh, in, in and that means the boots on the other foot, you're going to be in the position of though, the people who are formerly the US data processors receiving data flows uh from you so in trends terms you're going to be the position of face facebook us in in relation to to facebook ireland and that means you're the one that's going to have to be monitoring the operation of the standard contractual clauses you've signed up to and if you don't provide information in real time to the data controller who's exporting the data to you persuading them that things are all working properly and that your data is not being swallowed up Wholesale by the UK uh, uh, d- defence and law enforcement authorities, then the data flow to you is going to be stopped. So again, that's how the onus is going to work post-Brexit, and and until we get an adequacy decision. So that's the short Brexit point. And now it is over to Samita. Thanks.
1: Thank you, Gordon. Um, so we have another poll. Um so I'm gonna spend a, a few minutes um talking about um, some of the, the risks that Gordon has outlined um, but, and how to manage them, actually. Um, but before we move on, um, we, we wanted to do a very quick pulse check um, so that we can all understand whether we've started working on cross-border data transfer projects or not. So um, take a couple of seconds. Um, to answer this poll, we'll see the results very shortly. Oh, Michael, I think you might be on mute.
0: Thank you very much, Samita. Yes, uh, just closing the poll there, uh, over three quarters have voted. And uh, what you can see here is uh, an overwhelming uh, majority of people have commenced projects around managing cross-border data and transfer risks. So there we go. Um, Excellent. And I'll hand back you.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Um, So, you know, from the results of the poll, it's interesting to see um, that, you know, the large majority of you are aware of projects that have started to to manage this risk. Um, A proportion uh, of you have not yet um, or are, are unaware. Um, of any cross-border data transfer projects that are happening within your respective organizations. Um, For those of you who are midway through those projects or currently starting to embark on them, we thought it might be worth setting out at a very, very high level, the typical steps or phases um, that we've seen organizations consider. Um, These phases also, it's important to note, Um, really map or align to the European Data Protection Board's guidance. So that was uh, released last month, um, I think about the the 9th or 10th of November. And it was basically setting out supplementary measures um, to ensure that the same level of protection is afforded when EU data is transferred cross-border. Um, and it also set out some essential guarantees. So when you are looking at the laws um, or the interference that could be, uh, could happen to the EU data, um, of a country that you are transferring to, the essential guarantees that you may require from that uh, particular jurisdiction um, to again safeguard the data when it's being transferred. So you'll find that if you are uh, familiar with the EDPB guidance, um, that these um, steps or these phases. Um, largely map back to or consider the EDPB guidance um, uh, recommendations and the steps that they recommend also. Um, it's good to note that whilst we're focusing on the EU and whilst I've referenced the European Data Protection Board and we're looking at SHREMS as a topic, this methodology I'd like to say it applies um, to other forms of data localization. So we've helped Um, organizations, you know, adopt this sort of methodology to address um, particular uh, data transfer or localization rules as well. So, um, you know, some of the sub activities or points may be different, um, but it doesn't only just focus on um, addressing EU requirements. Um, So just to touch on each phase in turn. So starting with evaluate. Oh, apologies, Michael, if we go back. I'm just going to touch on each um, uh, phase in turn. Um, evaluate. So, this is about knowing your transfers. Um, easier said than done, of course, um, but um, I'd like to mention that here we've seen organizations sort of leverage um, existing records of processing activities, uh, systems architecture diagrams, and asset inventories to help them actually map. Um, you know, their their data transfers, to understand where data is going across their organization. So there are things that may exist within your organizations that you can leverage to help you do that. Some organizations are also looking at tools. So more from the technical aspect, um, you know, e-discovery or other data mapping tools or solutions that help them do that. Um, But otherwise, they are using, um, you know, their existing system architecture and records of processing activities to to, as a starting point. Um, What we're also seeing people do in this evaluate um, phase is to start to address or tier those transfers. um, To prioritize those transfers that most concern you. So we saw that. Um, At the beginning of the session, the poll indicated that you were most, um, this audience particularly, was most concerned about EU, US and Asia-PAC. So that could help you with your tiering. So are you looking at EU data being transferred to the US, that could be tier one, um, EU to elsewhere in the world, that could be tier two and so on. So um, this is really, you know, you're not trying to boil the ocean here. Um, it will also help you to prioritise what transfers you're going to start to remedy first or what are most concerning you. Um, can We can also um, Think about um, we can also sort of lose sight of um, the external vendors sometimes that we use and the onward transfers so remember that when you're mapping and understanding those tra- data transfers you're looking at internal transfers your internal IT systems the data that you process as an internal sort internally as an organization um, if you are providing services or technology solutions, hosting solutions on behalf of customers, you're looking at that data as well and also some of the vendors and sub processes or sub vendors that you use. um, So those onward transfers. Um, Moving on to respond, um, this is about, oh, I'm sorry, Michael, if we stay on the previous slide that's okay, no worries. Um, moving on to respond, um, this is where you're reviewing the controls that you already have in place. So you've mapped your transfers, you're now reviewing to see what safeguards you have in place um, already, whether it be contractual or, or other uh, safeguards that you have in place to legitimise those transfers. Um, here we would say also document the risk related to those particular. Uh, movements of data. So uh, drawing back to the EDPB guidance, um, you're also assessing here, part of that assessment of risk is assessing the, uh, the laws of the country that you're transferring to. And the EDPB actually puts in some suggestions in their guidance about um, the essential guarantees i won 't go into too much detail, but that 's essentially um, considering anything in the law or practice of that third country um, that may impinge on the you know the effectiveness of that safeguard or transfer, so you 're looking at what 's already in place and you 're documenting the risk according to the transfers that you 've mapped and evaluate moving on to remedy here 's where you start implementing so you 're implementing things from a technical, organisational and contractual perspective. Again, the EDPB has has uh, released some guidance that sets out some suggested, um, uh, you know, recommendations across all of those three, the technical, organisational and contractual um, recommendations. But also it's important here that moving, you know, Going back to Gordon's point, it's important for you to be documenting what steps you're actually taking to mitigate that risk. We found that this has been a really important step, not only to external parties, but also to senior leadership, to the board, to show how you are documenting your progress for these particular projects and how you are moving the compliance dial or mitigating the risk um, that, that you're trying to address. Um, moving on then very quickly to manage. Um, this, I suppose, is where some of the organisational organization, measures sort of fall. Um, this is about updating your policies, procedures, inserting the checkpoints within um, particular procurement, vendor management, privacy impact assessment policies. So you are addressing your immediate risks, but you're also planning for the future. So don't forget about the projects that you have upcoming, some of those, the data lake initiatives, we see so many organizations working on at the moment, whether it be offshoring, uh, outsourcing projects that you have that might not be in flight, but that your organization is developing, inserting those checkpoints and inputting to the, the planning of those processes, which is all going to, you know, impact on, on you know, the, these rules and some of the decisions that you take. Um, so, moving then on to the next slide, um, lots of people have asked, you know, what does the transfer impact assessment look like? What what are the key components? What are we supposed to be, you know, assessing? So we inserted this slide um, to help um, sort of put that into, into, you know, practice, I suppose. So when you're looking at the the previous phases of respond and, and remedy, And you're documenting risks and you're trying to understand or tier and group your data transfers it's really important to understand the categories of data the volume and sensitivity so that will give you already a very good indication of whether that has a certain level of risk and will help you tier those transfers that you would most likely address first We're then looking at, and what I mentioned before, is the data importer legal landscape. So that the laws of that third country, is there anything in those laws that impinge on the safeguards that you have in place um, that could cause some level of interference um, with the data that is being transferred? So you're also trying to assess that You're looking at your external data sharing protocols, so that is more of the organisation, organisational methods, the contractual methods that you have in place, and your your um, your you know your policies and the and the contractual terms that you have in place um, to support those transfers. And then from more of a technical aspect, um, the data security uh, safeguards. So these elements. Very practically speaking, these elements could be something that you look to insert or enhance any existing privacy by design policies or protocols to make sure that you're actually inserting um, or gathering the information and assessing the level of risk that allows you to not only understand the risk to the rights and freedoms of individuals, as we do with many uh, uh, data protection impact assessments, but also bolstering those processes so that you're also assessing the level of transfer risk. Um, So uh, we can cover any questions that you have on that um, in the Q&A, but moving then on to key takeaways um, from this session, um, I think that um, it's you know, it's been interesting to see that many of you have commenced your projects so far. Um, But what we are seeing organisations do is develop and maintain very prioritised plans for mitigating risk and also bolstering that with ongoing protocols and monitoring. So this is not a one-time exercise. You may address your data transfers, Um, and mitigate the risk, the immediate risk, but what the regulators and organizations are doing um, and suggesting is that you revisit that on a periodic basis to understand whether that risk has changed. So don't forget about that ongoing sort of monitoring uh, as well. So develop a prioritized plan and ongoing protocols and monitoring to manage risk. Um, Go ahead and
0: Michael. We've got a lot of questions here so I wonder if you just go pile into them if that's all right. Of
1: course, of course.
0: Uh, Chiara Stici, uh was wondering, Gordon, if you wouldn't mind uh, providing the exact reference to the new EU collective redress rules uh, that you mentioned.
2: Um, I can do that but uh, I'm going to uh, that will involve a lot of sort of neurotic looking, um, looking of things up. But the, um, the EU collective, the, the EU collective redress directive is basically it's, it's aimed at a whole series of areas of what might be broadly called consumer protection, including GDPR. I'll provide the reference if I may, um, if, I, if I get an opportunity while other questions are being dealt with. But I don't want to try and take up.
0: That's time great. And we can post that on the side or in the chat room. Really. Mm-hmm. Um, got a question here as well um, from. Uh, Bob McDowell, does data transfer apply to files, laptops, memory sticks and others physically taken out of the relevant regulatory jurisdiction?
2: Yes, it certainly does. Hence civil servants getting into deep water when they leave laptops and so on on trains.
0: Okay. Um, Gary, uh, Glenn and Alty is curious, does the liability for misuse of data include the creation of misinformation associated
2: with personal information? It can, because one of the important data subject rights is a right to correct incorrect or misleading data. So it, it segues into that space. Hmm,
0: good. Um, and another question for you for me and Sheridan. Uh, Gordon, the EU's EDPB fills in the gaps in the GDPR's case law and provides guidance on global DP issues. From the 1st of January, will the ICO fulfill a similar role with future UK Supreme Court decisions and guidance? Or is that unknown?
2: I, I think that's the idea, essentially. I, it, one of the big problems with repatriating EU regulation following Brexit, not just in data protection, but across the piece, is understanding whether the new mechanisms for, uh, uh, for for supervision of what the UK government's up to are going to be as effective and as powerful as the equivalent EU mechanisms. I think that largely remains to be seen. OK. Um, uh, from scott
0: Bryan, i think this might be for you to i use a hosting service for my website like most it is under constant attack by bots while i am able to deal with this it is obvious that just a handful of sources are responsible for the attacks since these are obvious what is the legal liability of the national and international agencies that allow these to operate both as originators of this activity or targets of it especially with regards to situations where one gets access to data when they should not have been allowed to operate and the regulatory of, agencies yes, carrying
2: not, the tough the luck it's very very difficult to impose duties of care on national regulatory authorities courts not just in the uk jurisdictions but throughout europe are very reluctant to say that um just to police the particular way in which regulatory authorities go about this kind of enforcement work if, if a national regulatory authority say said we're just not interested we're going to do nothing that could be reviewed as a statement of policy, but courts aren't going to get into the minutiae. of saying, well, you should have done this, and you, and you didn't, that didn't act quite effectively enough. So I'm afraid it's another of those stories where the buck stops with the data controller. Uh, where enterprises
0: have bought data from end users, do data protection regulations last? last that, that
2: was from Bob McDowell. That, that's, a, that's a tricky one. They, they might, uh, they might, but essentially the, the, safe, excuse me, the safest assumption. Is if you're doing anything with EU and UK citizens' data, regardless of the source, you're going to be a data controller and you're going to be subject to regulation.
1: Yeah, so I, I would I would wholeheartedly agree with that. We've seen uh, organisations treat bought-in data um, from data subjects or with their permission in the same way as any other data. So the same rules are are being applied.
0: Okay. Uh, Gary asks, do you think organizations may choose to transfer risk to the individual by insisting that the individual assume responsibility for their data, uh, which, of course, uh, this is me speaking personally, is uh, subject to a, a report we did last year on information rules and new data architectures, uh, rather than on the risk of processing personal data in a non-compliant fashion? Her, uh, I'm,
1: I'm sorry, Michael. Could you repeat that question? Sure. I'm uh, awfully do, sorry. Do you think
0: organizations may choose to transfer risk to the individual by insisting that the individual resume, assume responsibility for their data rather than run the risk of processing it in a non-compliant fashion?
1: Um I don't think. So that's just my personal opinion. I don't think that um, they they may wish to look at something like consent um, or or something, but um, that's not what I have been discussing with many, many large organisations. I think that they're still maintaining the responsibility. And in fact, some of them are actually saying that they are going to compensate um, individuals. So they're retaining that liability and they're going to compensate individuals if they are found to be in breach of rules.
0: Okay. Uh, from Bob again, does data protection have an historical limitation, i.e. if data is more than X years old, is it exempt from regulatory requirements?
2: Uh, on the contrary, uh, under the GDPR, data subjects have a right to be forgotten. So if you're holding on to old data, then um, you won't get a tick for, for doing so. So having a, having a data destruction policy and publishing it is, is one of the key planks of ensuring that you're compliant in terms of data subject rights
0: um Chiara would like you to answer Gordon uh just could you expand just a teensy bit on the issue of the appointment of a representative under GDPR
2: um can, can I take the rain check on that one because it would it would it would involve a longer answer than I think most people would want again let, let's let's pick that one up off grid if, uh, if uh
0: also related to that uh but maybe maybe you could um any thoughts on, uh, and Kara? in fact, ran a webinar on this, on Article 40 Code of Conduct and what, they, what role
2: they might play in this? That's interesting. That's been, that's been un, under consideration. And um, my take on this is that codes of conduct are very helpful and very useful. And I think the, thing, the thinking, let, let's, let's look at what's going to happen after the parting of the ways at the end of transition. Um, English courts, in particular, like codes of conduct but they like holding organizations to code of conduct. So there's always a benefit and a burden with this. If you're saying, well, there's a code of conduct and we're sticking to it and we get a tick for doing so, the flip side of that is if you don't stick to it, um, then that can be a further ground on which you can, you can find yourselves open to criticism. So they're useful, uh, but they, there's a bit of a price tag to them.
0: Kara mm. um, continues, transparency is a good start, but the individual redress element is never in the control of the data center or controller. Being transparent about sending data to China but having no control over the individual redress is not going to cut much ice with the EU data protection supervisory authorities. Isn't this a theoretical exercise? The risk is there and cannot be minimized.
2: Uh, what you're doing is telling your data subjects what the risk is to which their data is being subject. So informed consent is one of the, the, the idea of autonomy of the data subject. Is, is one of the light motifs of the thinking of the, of the court of justice and the european parliament and others with, with an interest in this and so it may be that there are certain risks to which the consumer is subjecting themselves but they've got to know about it and so transparency is the watchword as i say when i was give, when i was giving the uh, the example of conflicting requirements you may not be able to be entirely compliant but you can make yourself maximally compliant and one of the ways you can help do that mitigate the risk is by telling people what you're doing
1: and also just to add to that documenting those decisions that you've actually taken taken a proper approach to evaluate what uh, the risks are um with the you know china data protection laws or surveillance laws okay
0: um I, it's always a sign that we're coming to the end of time when people begin thanking and i will in fact be passing all the comments and questions on to uh, both uh, samita and gordon but I might like to end on, on, on just a, a somewhat discursive point, uh, even though the time is short. Um, and basically, according to Oliver Patel, it seems as if you interpret terms 2 in the EDP guidance literally, many EUES data, US data transfers have to stop. Um, and I might add to that, I, you know, as I was watching this presentation, I was thinking if I was a UK processing center, Uh, in the middle of a whole bunch of EU, particularly financial services work, I could see that many of my clients might want to bypass me. Um, Do you think this will actually happen?
2: My take on this, what it's worth, is, is that it's a reminder that among all the burdens that this strand of legislation imposes on business, there's also an opportunity. And it's an opportunity that's not been lost on the EU institutions. They rather like the idea. Of developing a European cloud, and the the, the Commission um, there was a Commission press release just um, I, I just last month on uh, uh, on the development of an EU cloud as part of that package of measures that Samita referred to right at the beginning. So for those who are interested in investing in this space, I think there's an opportunity here in terms yeah. of, um, of making the making Europe competitive with the US and with China as a as a place where uh, where data is processed and used.
1: Exactly, and you I mentioned also the the EU Data Governance Act is on the same is is doing exactly that.
0: Great. Well, well, what a subject to roll through! And you'd have thought some arcane area of the law would wouldn't uh, provoke so many wonderful questions. Um, if I may, I just have uh, three quick rounds of thanks. Uh, the first, as ever, are to the sponsors who make all of this possible. Uh, Many of you are working deep in the area of, uh, well, anything to do with technology is deep in the area of data and personal data is a crucial part of that. So thank you very much for allowing us to run a session on this. Um, I'd like to thank the audience. You've been extremely uh, vigorous and active today and we we do love it. It means that we're obviously hitting some nerves that are are worth touching on. We do have a wealth of webinars coming forward uh, this week alone. Be looking at aml tomorrow uh sorry on wednesday which is of course quite related to this uh and a whole bunch of other things on the website uh, but obviously the people i really want to thank are both Sumita and gordon for preparing today uh, unfortunately in this age of covid i'm unable to open the floodgates of applause that the audience would give you but as i said i shall pass on their comments but i do in fact i have brought my little korean karmic clapper here uh, <laughs> from my temple in Baraksa and I thank you on behalf of the audience. Thanks to you. We're going to have to keep a really close eye on and perhaps we can have you back next year to update us. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.
2: Many thanks.